This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, Senior Minister Dee Bacon will be teaching the message. That you've uh, tuned in. We're glad uh, to be here at this moment, at this place. If you're unaware of this, my name is Didi Bacon. I'm the senior minister here, and it falls upon me uh, during our time together to uh, help us journey through engaging with God's Word and see where God will speak to us so that we might live in step with Him in the world that we live in today. This is the final in our series entitled Brave, and the purpose of this series was to take a look at first century, the first church, and look at examples of when Jesus followers, those who were seeking to follow Christ with all their life, where they engaged the culture in order to bring to them what we call the good news. It is good news, the good news of Jesus, that through Jesus, we could be right with God through faith. Jesus, who was the Son of God, came into the world, died for the sins of mankind, was buried, and came back to life again so that we might know that His promises are true and might live by that same power in our lives. One of the neat things about, I guess, getting older is that uh, you begin to recognize the truth of while things may seem to change, they stay the same. Uh, things seem to work in cycles. Instead of like trends and fashions and stuff, I'm, I'm praying that the, the 1970s fashion doesn't return. That's one thing I hope this doesn't apply to. Who wants to wear bell bottoms and uh, corduroys and have those massive collars? Do you remember those in the 70s? If you ran too fast, they would start to lift up. Anyway, one of the things that uh, this is true is with haircuts. When I was a kid, my dad would send me to the barber and the instruction was, Give them short back and sides, they, meaning I would be shaved on the sides and the, and, and, and the back and the sides uh, in order to keep my hair off my collar. When we went to school, we wore uniforms in Zimbabwe, and we weren't allowed our hair to touch our collar. That was the rules, and so short back and sides, that was the fashion. That was the trend at that time. Fast forward to today, and my sons, who are baseball players, and now, believe it or not, baseball players are into fashion kind of stuff, haircuts, certain looks, certain ways. Uh, I see my sons going to pay barbers a lot more money than I would be willing to pay, but they're still willing to pay it. They pay for haircuts, and I have to chuckle because when I look at it, this is what I see. Here's the, here's the trend today. Check this out. What does that look like to you? Short back and sides, right? Short back. What was then is going to return to be now, right? It's, it's a cycle. What you think is uh, new now was done once long, long ago. You know, this is also true when it comes to culture. And in my study of Scripture, as I pour myself into uh, particularly the study of the book of Acts, one of the things that become very apparent is that the culture of the New Testament church, the culture in which the church was born into, the culture in which Jesus uh, sent forth His apostles into the world to establish what we call the Christian church, that first century culture is very much like the culture we live in today. The values, the beliefs, the trends 
are very much like the culture of today. The church was born into a culture that in many ways follows the same patterns of of beliefs and philosophies that we live by today. Which means then that there is never a time in which the New Testament, which means the, the, the message of the Bible, never a time, as far as I'm concerned, in our generation where it has more relevance and more connection than today. And so as we think about concluding our message series about being brave and how to live out a bold faith, I think it's important for us to, to recognize that we face a time in which we, as Jesus followers, have an opportunity to make a difference in our culture. And I'm talking about our neighbors and our friends and our community. We have an opportunity to make a difference in sharing the message of Jesus Christ as was shared right from the beginning. But it's important that we understand what's going on in the lives of our neighbors. And it's important to understand that we look to the New Testament when it comes to figuring out maybe strategy, figuring out maybe patterns to follow. And so that brings me to the text for us today. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 24, 34, excuse me. I'm going to encourage you to read this on your own. It's the story of the Apostle Paul when he was in the Greek city of Athens. Now, the story catches Paul in Acts 17 when he and his associates were in what's called their second missionary journey. They were traveling around the known world then. Paul had been given by God the, the, the task of bringing the message of Jesus to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And so Paul was traveling through Greece he was in Thessalonica, and his strategy was he would start at the Jewish synagogue, a place in which he had an opportunity to share with them from their scriptures, these God-fearing people. He would share with them the fact that Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. And from that point, he would then move on to reach out to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. That was his strategy. And so in Thessalonica, we're told that he established a church, and that church was beginning to grow. But the Jews... From that area, the Jews from that synagogue did not like what Paul was saying, did not agree with the fact that, that Jesus is the Christ, their Messiah, and so they caused up trouble for him, caused a mob that then forced him to leave. And so he and his associates left Thessalonica, and they went to a neighboring town called Berea. And there Paul did what he did. He went to the, the synagogue, and he reasoned with them from their scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And we're told that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the scriptures to see what Paul had, had said was true. And, and a church was established there. Now, the troublemakers in Thessalonica heard that Paul had moved on to Berea, and so they followed him there, and they caused up trouble for Paul in Berea. And so the believers, the, the members of the church there said to Paul, you need to get out of here. It's dangerous for you to be here. You need to leave. And so Paul left Berea, and we're told he headed towards Athens. I believe the goal was to get to Corinth, another major city where Paul wanted to establish and plant a church. And Paul, in Athens, while he's waiting for his associates, Timothy and Silas, we're told in chapter 17, verse 16, we're told that Paul looks around him and he's deeply disturbed. 
And so let's catch up with the text right here. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, I just want you to take a pause. Paul is in Athens. Athens was an ancient city even back then, an old city that had a deep history, a deep history of, of renown and political power. Athens was, was a center of, of Greek democracy. Athens was a center of, of many, many famous Greek philosophers. Athens was a center of Greek culture. At the time of Paul, Athens had lost its political power, but it had not lost its influence when it came to culture and, uh, and philosophy and ideology and all the things that made an influence in that society at that time. The empire may have been Rome, but the way of thinking was definitely Greek, and Athens was the center of Greek thinking. And Paul in Athens observes what's going on, and it says he was, he was deeply moved in the spirit. He was upset by what he saw. What did he see? What upset him? All the idols. What he saw in Athens was a microcosm of what was going on in his culture, what was going on in the rest of the empire. What Paul saw was, was, was idol, idolatry, and so what did he do? He began to do what he was called to do. He began to reason with people regarding Jesus. And the word reason there means dialogue. He began to dialogue first to the people in the synagogue, people who were Jews and God-fearing Greeks, and second, with the folks in the marketplace. And what we have here is a picture of what was going on in that culture. Two groups of people to which Paul was reaching out to. Those in the synagogue, he reached out to them from the basis of God's Word. Why? Because they believed the Old Testament. They were Jews. Paul was a Jew. Paul could come to them and say, look, the Bible says this, this, and this, and this proves that Jesus is the one whom we've been waiting for as a people. Jesus is our Messiah. Believe in Him. Paul could reason with these folks from the point of view of the Bible. The other group, the people in the marketplace or the Agora, they didn't hold the Bible to be true. Paul couldn't come to them and say, hey, by the way, it says in Genesis, or it says in Deuteronomy, it says in Psalms, it says in the prophet so-and-so. He couldn't do that because they would say, so what? Who cares? That's Jewish, that's Jewish stuff. We're not Jews. We don't believe that stuff. And what we see in that culture was there's these two groups. There were the groups that were, perhaps you could say, from the synagogue and the groups that were in the marketplace. And the group that was in the marketplace was greater than the groups that were in the synagogue, right? You had more people in the marketplace than you did in the synagogue. More people that came to the world from a perspective that was not grounded in Scripture. Today, we live in a culture that's undergoing a major shift that's happened perhaps quietly right beneath us. American culture has shifted, if you'd like, from 
synagogue to marketplace more than ever before. There was a time, perhaps 50, 60 years ago, where if you were an American, it would be assumed that you had some familiarity with the Bible. You had some respect to the Word of God. Our court system, we still do it, right? We place our hand on the Bible and we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. What is that? That is a testimony to the roots of our culture, that we had a reverence and a respect to the Word of God. And while we may not all be committed Jesus follows, you could guess that most folks, 60, 50, how many years ago, had some sense of knowledge regarding the Bible. And so in many ways, they were folks that were like in the synagogue. And what it required for us as, as church folk, as folks who are committed to, to following Jesus with our, all our heart and all our mind and all our soul, what it required for us is, was, was to go to them and appeal to them from that basis. That was then. This is now. And today, I'm going to tell you, your neighbors, by and large, don't believe in the Bible. Don't hold it in reverence. Don't know the stories. Your neighbors, my neighbors, your kids, my kids, their friends, your peers, the people you work with, they believe that the Bible was then, but this is now. And it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe, everyone's entitled to live by their own truth. And if you come to them saying, the Bible says, they will say, so what? That's good for you. It's not where I live. So what? I like how James Emery White put it. He said, if we had a, had a scale of zero to 10, and 10 being a fully committed Jesus follower, and zero being someone who has no clue or idea of what the Bible is and all about, he said, there was a few years ago, you would assume that the average American on that scale that perhaps wasn't all the way in church would have been at a six or seven or eight. And so the strategy of the church in order to reach out to them would be, hey, let's appeal to them from the basis of God's Word. Let's bring them into church. Let's have them respond and repent of being backsliders or being people that had not fully committed themselves to the Word of God. But you had a basis on which you could appeal to them from saying, thus says the Word of God. The strategy of church would be to, to move them from a, the seven towards the ten. Today, most people, most people are not at six or seven or eight. Most people are at one, two, or three. They believe Christmas is all about Santa Claus and have no idea that's a story about the birth of Jesus Christ the Savior. They believe that Easter is more about Easter bunnies and eggs than about the celebration of resurrection. If you ask them on a, on a survey, what's your religion, most of our, more and more of this, our neighbors and friends and community are going to write, none, I have no religion. I have no religion. I don't associate with any religion. I don't want to associate with religion because religion is not a good thing. We have moved to a situation in which we're no longer so much synagogue as a culture, and we're more and more marketplace. You are more and more in the marketplace than you are in the synagogue. I can, I can almost guarantee it. The people you interact with, the people that you go to work with, the people that you have relationships and friendships with and, and, and do recreational things in the community, they are more in the marketplace than they are in the synagogue. And it's important that we take that 
remember that when we deal with the question of, okay, how do we reach them? How do we reach them? And I'm thankful that we have this story in the book of Acts where Paul gives us a pattern, a way to show us how we might reach them. Paul is reasoning with them in the marketplace, and we're told that some of the philosophers, some of the philosophical members of the philosophical schools of the day are intrigued by his message, thinking he's bringing up some new stuff, and so they invite him to come speak to them. Come speak to their elite group of individuals who discuss these things. See, in Athens, there was this meeting place called the Areopagus. And there, a council would meet. In times past, this council acted more like a court that dealt with, with very serious matters, capital offense issues. But now, that, that function had gone away. And now, it was more of, a, of, a, of a, a gathering of highly influential, highly smart, highly educated people who would come together, and they would discuss the latest ideas and the latest philosophies and the latest religion. And Paul talking to people in the marketplace, is invited by them to go to the Areopagus to present on what he's teaching regarding Jesus. And so we catch it up with verse 22. It says, Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. I'm going to stop there right there. One of the things that we have to recognize that though our neighbors and members of our community, though they may say they don't want anything to do with the Bible, they're not interested in, in, in the Christian church, just because they are not interested in organized religion does not mean they're not open to matters of faith. In fact, I would argue that our, we have a generation, a culture, very interested in spiritual matters. Our friends and neighbors, they believe in guardian angels. They believe in the power of prayer. They also believe in karma. They also believe in, in, in meditation to bring about help for them to, to live in this crazy world. Our friends and neighbors have a hunger for things spiritual. They're looking for answers to provide them certainty in this uncertain world. And they're coming at it with the idea, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe because that's your truth to live out your truth. But they're still open to it. They're asking questions about the supernatural. They believe in ghosts, and they're waiting for the zombie apocalypse. Our friends and neighbors in our community who are not Jesus followers are open to spiritual matters. And just like Paul, we need to acknowledge that because that is the door by which we have opportunity to speak to them to meet them where they are at a one or two or three in this, this spectrum of bringing them to a place where they'll know Jesus, but to meet them there at that place. We can't come at them with Bible yet. We have to come to them where they are. Hey, I can see that you're looking for answers to life. Hey, I can see that you need guidance in, in how to, to rear up your children or how to deal with your marriage or how to look for a resource that's greater than yourselves to deal with the addictions that you have in your life. Like Paul, we can come to them and say, I see that you're very religious or very spiritual. Now, from this vantage point, Paul will talk to the, this council and he say, I see you're very religious because uh, you have all these idols everywhere. And as I was walking through the city, I noticed you had an idol 
that was simply entitled to an unknown God. The Athenians were really worried that they may miss a God and make him mad, so they figured they'll have a catch-all uh, idol there to make sure that they didn't make him mad and get into trouble. So they had this, this you know, in our budget we have this mis miscellaneous line. This was their miscellaneous God idol. And Paul says, you know, I see that you have this thing to an unguard God. I want to tell you something about this unknown God that you are having this idol to. And I want you to know that this unknown God is really the living, breathing God of all creation. And from that vantage point, he will walk through the door provided from their hunger for spiritual matters, and he will reference their own writings, he will speak their own language, he will make a point based upon their own perspective, from their own uh, communications and perspectives, and he will bring them to a place where they will come face to face with the resurrected Jesus. Listen, listen to what Paul says, Acts 17, 28. He's quoting some of their writers, some of their philosophers. He says, for in Him we live and move and have our being. He's referencing to the unknown God and, and saying He's the creator of all things. And he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, he said, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now we're told as soon as Jesus, as soon as Paul references Jesus' resurrection, Everyone blows their cork, right? They go nuts about it. Like, what are you saying? Blah, blah, blah. They go crazy. Why? Because, because this is the place in which people are forced to make a decision regarding faith. And it strikes me that if we're ever going to be interested in sharing uh, the good news of Jesus, it's highly important that we recognize that it's always got to come to resurrection. The power of our message, the difference maker to what we have to say regarding all the other options provided for people to, to find faith, to find meaning, to find wholeness. The difference is, is this. Jesus died and came back to life again. The difference is that the power of our message is in the fact that a man rose from the dead. And that message comes to life in our personal interactions with others when we can say, because Jesus came back to life again, I have come back to life. I was once dead in addiction, but now I've come back to life in wholeness. I was once dead in hopelessness, but now I've found life in finding hope and meaning. I was once dead in, in the way I treated people. But now I've come back to life through resurrection to learn to love my neighbor as I love myself. The power of our message when reaching our neighbors has to come back to a life that's come back from the dead, Jesus first, and our own in our testimony. Scripture says some of the people, verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, 
also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, I read that verse, and one of the things that struck me, I don't know if this struck you, notice what it said. It says, they became followers of who? Who did they become followers of? Paul. They started following Paul, and now I'm like, wouldn't they say they would become followers of Jesus? Which then had a light bulb moment, I'm like, ah, this is the way God has set this whole thing in place. You see, what God is doing is that the way to make Jesus followers is to live for Jesus and invite someone you're connected to to follow you as you follow Jesus. The word follow there really means they, they, they were tight, they were bonded, they were united to Him. They became Jesus followers by becoming followers of Paul which tells me that the goal of bringing people to Christ isn't to bring them to church per se. The goal is to bring them to a place where they learn to follow Jesus as they follow you. So here's the challenge in all of this. If we're interested in bringing people, our neighbors who do not know Jesus, to a place where they will make a commitment to Jesus, to bring them from the, the position to that they are when it comes to, to knowing about living for God to a place of 10 where, where you are, if that's the, the goal, then you have to understand that it requires then you living for Jesus and inviting others into following you as you follow Jesus. Can you name someone who's looking to you to follow Jesus? Who do you follow in, in a, a tight relationship in learning to follow Jesus as a, as a man or as a woman? See, this is the Jesus way. This is the, the process that God has called us to be a part of. They followed Paul and believed. Can you name someone or someones who are looking to you in the marketplace where you live, looking to you as you follow Jesus? Are you open to connecting with them, the people that God has placed in your world, in your sphere of influence, looking to you as you follow Jesus? Are you open? and available to look for someone whom you can follow as they follow Jesus so that you can see what it means to live by the Word of God? I'm going to just say this another way. We, at this time, are very interested in our nation's future, aren't we? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing it all over the place. People are scared to death. And election time, we start getting into this conversation about uh, where is our country going? And we start to, to rally behind the candidate or policy or philosophy that we believe is going to take our country where we need to be. These are uncertain times. These are scary times. These are times in which you may wonder, what is next? This world has gone crazy. And the question is, is okay, if, that's, if, if, if we're worried about our country, if we're worried about our community, if we're worried about our neighborhoods, if we're worried about our, our schools and our church and, and the way we live and our economy and our God, what do we do about it? How are we going to, 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 to have the, the kind of culture that we feel like we need? Well, let's ask the question, what kind of culture do we want? Do you want neighbors that are neighborly? Neighbors that are honest and kind. 
Neighbors that you can feel comfortable with going over and say, hey, by the way, I'm out of sugar. Can I borrow one? Well, I'll tell you that Jesus followers are called to love their neighbors as themselves. And so if you want neighbors like that, then Jesus followers fit the bill. We're worried about law and order in our country. We're worried about people uh, being solid citizens for these United States. We want people to, to, to honor the law and honor those in uniform. We want people to, to abide by the rules and pay taxes. We want an orderly society so that people can flourish in the economy. Well, you know what? The Bible says very clearly that if you're a fully committed follower to Jesus, giving your heart to Him, then you need to pray for the King and you need to pay your taxes and you need to honor those in authority as long as they don't seek to force you in some situations, seek to force you to be disobedient to God Himself. I think there are no better citizens of any nation than Jesus' followers because that's what the Word of God teaches them to do. You want a nation that has no prejudice, where we see each other without prejudice, judging and treating each other poorly, well, very clearly the Bible teaches that prejudice in the book of James is a sin for a Jesus follower. Are you tracking with me? Are you seeing what I'm saying? We want families that are solid where, where husbands and wives are working on their marriages and their marriages are flourishing as a testimony to the stability of, of the family. We want uh, parents who are rearing up their children in, in the way they, they need to operate as mature individuals who are obedient to authority but productive in life. Well, guess what the Bible says? Those who follow Jesus and have given themselves fully to it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Honor the marriage bed. Wives, Submit to your, your husbands as, as the church is called to, to, to follow Christ. Children, obey your parents. Parents, do not exacerbate. Do not anger your kids in the way you treat them. Do you see what I'm saying? If we want the kind of society and community that we say we, we're so passionate about and we're worried about and, and we want to make sure our candidate gets voted so we can have, maybe we need to reevaluate that, that strategy and ask ourselves if we really want that, then maybe the strategy needs to be more about reaching the people in the marketplace around us with the good news of Jesus so that their life can be transformed by the resurrection power that's transforming us. And we're doing our part to teach them to learn and to live Scripture as we learn and live Scripture, seeking to make them not Jesus' church attenders, but Jesus' followers in life. See, in Scripture, we have a clear process, the Jesus way of making followers. Well, it begins with making sure that we understand that the power is in the small. The power is in connections. The power is in taking the opportunity with the people that you're at, at your work in the marketplace and taking an opportunity to be open to them, to look, to meet them where they are, as Paul did, to speak to them in the language that they understand and to point them to the God who made all things so that you may have this, this, this time, may have a platform where you might share with them about resurrection power, not only Jesus raised from the dead, but Jesus raising the dead out of you in your life as you come back to life living for Him. It's small. Transformation doesn't happen typically in the big. It happens in the small. 
And the reason happens in the small is because of this next step. It's because we're talking about stuff of life. And so we go small and we go strong. What does strong mean? Strong means we live our lives based on the truth, the truth that we can stand upon solid in this uh, very unstable world, Scripture. And the purpose of our studying the Scriptures is so that we may live it out. We learn and live Scripture. Why? So that we may have opportunity to be the scriptural curriculum to the one who is looking to us to show them the way to Jesus. Now, I know a lot, of, a lot of you get all kind of nervous about this and think, I don't know enough Bible, Didi. I barely know where Matthew is from, from, from Ezekiel, and I don't know, couldn't tell you all that. Well, you know what? It's a process. And the bottom line is, is that in order to lead someone, all you have to do is be one step ahead, right? How many of you teachers know that to be true, right? For your students, all you need to know is just one thing more than them, and you're a teacher, <laughs> Right? There is someone who is further along in the spiritual, in, the, in, in the, the step towards becoming a fully-fledged Jesus follower who's looking to you. And, and if you're one step ahead of that person in, in your prayer life and one step ahead in your experience with Jesus and being obedient to his word, one step ahead in, in learning scripture and applying it to your life, if you're just one step ahead, then you're available to, to help that person know what it means to follow Jesus. And likewise, if you need someone to guide you, all they have to do is be one step ahead. See, the Jesus way to, to make followers is to go small, to go strong, and finally to realize that it's a process that takes time. Transformation takes time. God's way of remaking us takes time. Now, there is the miracle. There is the exception. That's why I say God change is usually a process. There are moments in which things happen in people's lives that are quite spectacular. But typically, those are the exception in order to, in order to illustrate something significant regarding God's purposes. By and large, most of transformation takes time. It's slow. We're talking days. We're talking weeks. We're talking months. We're talking years. A slow process of continuous obedience to the calling God has brought into our life so that we might be continually transformed by His Spirit as we learn and live Scripture in a community of small, striving to be strong and walking at the pace of relationship, which is slow. Look, the problem with our culture today is that it runs at a pace so fast that none of us have any depth in our life. It's no surprise that at this season, the enemy, Satan, is in charge of the world. And he wants to keep us running ragged. God's way is slow. And one of the upsides of this pandemic thing is it's forced us to slow down. It's forced us to recognize the power of slow and the depth of relationship because that's transformational. Every one of us, as Jesus followers, is called to be part of this process. This is not just for the, the specially gifted and the specially trained. If you are a Jesus follower, if you are a Christian, the way you're going to reach your neighborhood the way you're going to reach those who are in the marketplace is to look for opportunities to engage in with them in conversations from their perspective using their language that points to the truth of Jesus, to bring them to a place in a small environment of connection, to a place where you can talk about the strong things of life, 
in the course of a process of time. I'm going to ask again, can you name individuals who are looking to you to see what it means to be a Jesus follower? Can you name individuals that are looking to you to whom you can say, Jesus rose from the dead and he's bringing me to life. Do you have someone in your life to whom you have sought out what it means to be a Jesus follower and connect with them in the small and the strong and in the slow? This is the Jesus way. This is the New Testament way by which we will see the transformation of our culture one person at a time, one neighborhood at a time, one community at a time, one state at a time, one nation at a time. Can you name someone who's looking to you? And the answer to that is no. Then I ask that you would just consider that, pray about that, and ask God's Spirit to lead you in that. Ask about your openness. Ask about your assumptions. Have you, have you taken on this view that, that, that church is really the American dream with a little Jesus on it? You're more passionate about who gets an office than you are about your neighbor knowing about Jesus? Who do you know that looks to you as you look to Christ, whom God has assigned you to lead them to life? Because that's the way, that's the way that Jesus laid out for us to follow. It's no mistake that Jesus was with a small group of friends when he instituted what we call communion. You know, the first communion, if you grab your communion cups, those of you at home can get this ready. The first communion was not conducted in a group of 500, 600 large church event. The first communion was done around a table with a small group of guys with Jesus. And in that situation, Jesus instituted something that we as a body do every week to remember the basis of our faith. We take the bread, and in the bread we say, we remember the broken body of Jesus. Let us take the bread. We take the cup, and we remember the spilled blood of Jesus. Let's take the cup. In all this, we know that while we have celebrated or remembered the death of Jesus, we understand that the death is not the end of the story. In fact, the death has no power unless resurrection, unless life. And Jesus came back to life on the third day, and He offers a living, transformational hope that He's entrusted you and me to share with our neighbors. Resurrection of one man can bring about resurrection of me and you and our life that we can then share with others who are dying. 
Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for this opportunity we can share, and thank you for your word and the testimony of Paul. I pray that you would give us a boldness, a, a brave faith that seeks to, to do what we're called to do, small, strong, slow, in bringing and sharing with others where they are, bringing them to the place where they can, can learn to have faith, to believe, and to live out by your word and to live by the resurrection power that we live by. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Thank you for being with us. If you're online, please let us know if you have any prayer requests or have any questions. You can reach out to us on the online response card. If you are uh, here and want to share prayer need, we have a little uh, uh, notes out in the foyer. Also know if you have any offerings, you can put that in the, in the, the urn thing that's out there. That's what it looks like, right? So uh, God bless. Glad you're here. Good to see you. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.